0: Welcome to Innovation Forum's Future of Climate Action Conference. I'm Ian Welsh. I'm delighted to welcome Rob Cameron, who is the Global Head of Public Affairs at Nestle. We're going to be discussing whether net zero represents too narrow a target to adopt as a business strategy. A Provocative question, but lots to talk about there. Rob, why don't you start by kicking this off and outlining what Nestle is doing in terms of its net zero strategy?
1: from our point of view, we are well into our journey now on net zero. So to give you a little bit of perspective on it, we came to this in 2018, 2019, launched our net zero roadmap at the end of 2020. Science-based targets aligned and Paris aligned. So the goal is net zero by 2050, 50% reductions by 2030, and a 20% reduction by 2025. That in itself, so far so good. But for a company like us, what we need to really understand is that by far and away, the greater bulk, fully 95% of our in-scope emissions are scope three emissions. The scale of the challenge is enormous when it comes to the need to drive the change through our value chain. Of those scope three emissions, the vast majority are in agriculture and the sourcing of our ingredients. When we looked at this, what we realized very, very quickly was that getting caught up in a target setting game of, is it 2050? Is it 2045? Is it 2040? I'll see your 2040 and raise you to 2039. And it's only scopes one and two. We made a very clear decision. That's not a game we're playing. The game we're playing, what we really wanted to do was to focus on action in the here and now, because what the science tells us is that if we don't achieve a 20% reduction by 2025, and 50% by 2030. Frankly, it makes 2050 bordering on impossible. And if it's physically possible, it would be unfeasibly expensive for us to achieve it. So our focus was very much on what do we do now? When we looked at it, what became very clear also was that we needed to focus in on agriculture. That's where the emissions are. And there are certain parts of our agricultural supply chain, such as dairy, where they're particularly heavy. So we needed to address that. And then the next step on from that was, okay, so if we want to get across what's going on in agriculture, how do we do that? And that's where we came up with an important bet. I wouldn't say the biggest bet, and I don't even know it's a bet because I think it's just something that we have to do. This is part of an overall theming that we've got around advancing regenerative food systems at scale. That's what we want to do. Climate sits within that, and the way in which we can make it real is through regenerative agriculture. We're investing heavily, 1.2 billion between the launch and 2025. A lot of that money is being spent on working with farmers and supporting farmers. And that sits within this notion, which many people on this call will have heard about, of the just transition, because our perspective is there will be no transition to a low carbon economy without it being a just transition. So that means working very closely with our supply chain partners, especially farmers, with a view to technical assistance, financial support and paying premiums for regeneratively produced ingredients. That's absolutely crucial to it. So having said all of that and having said we're not playing the long term game of is it 2050, is it 2039, it's about action now. What I can also tell you, since we launched the roadmap, is that our emissions have peaked. We've cracked the decoupling of growth of company with growth in emissions. And in fact, actually, emissions, absolute reductions down 4 million tonnes. We think we peaked. We don't know the exact month, but it was sometime in 2021, early 2021. And we're now on a downward trajectory. So that's the sort of net zero roadmap launch. And that's the progress to date in a nutshell. Uh, but there's an awful lot more to say about the regeneration program and around some of the challenges that we face in agriculture, I'm sure. Everybody talks
0: about the transition now. I wonder whether there's a danger of focusing too much on just carbon and forgetting the other things need to be involved in the move towards an NGO. How do you characterize the dangers of focusing exclusively on a carbon lens? I
1: think there's a couple of caveats here straight away. Firstly, let's not kid ourselves. The climate threat is the biggest threat facing humanity. For me, there's no doubt about it. And I think that I can express as both a personal view and a corporate view. The COVID crisis came along. Was it massive? Yes, of course it was. If it wasn't for the COVID crisis, we'd probably be sitting in a conference room somewhere or other in the world and be having this conversation face to face. So it's clearly changed the way things are. The conflict, and let's not call it a conflict, let's call it what it is, the invasion in Ukraine, is a massive geopolitical problem. But like all wars, it will come to an end in some form or other. But climate, I think, is the crisis that is really brewing quite violently now. So I think the caveat the answer a little bit, that's the first thing to say. Climate is an incredibly challenging threat to our civilization. Having said that, a little bit of caution is needed, and I think the way the question was originally framed, it may even be in the title of the session, is it too narrow a business strategy? In one sense, if you look at it through the lens of only a business strategy, the answer is yes, because history shows us that there are plenty of chief executives and companies that have been outstanding in addressing sustainability issues, but have not stood the test of time when it comes to delivering on the other things that matter focus on consumers, making sure that you're delivering the products and services that your customers want, making sure you keep the numbers ticking along. Let's be clear, those are really important as well. Not instead of, but as well. That's got to be delivered. And then thinking about the climate agenda, one of the things that strikes me when I look at our value chain around the world is that there are certain parts of the world where you want to have a conversation about climate change and people will turn around and say, well, that's all very well, but what I really want to talk about is water scarcity. There's a real disconnect for some people around the topics that matter most to them, wherever they may be in the world. I think another facet of this, and it goes back to this theme of a just transition, there's no question in my mind that problems like deforestation, and if you look at deforestation and the link with climate change, there's a very strong link there. Deforestation drives climate change, climate change drives deforestation. And what else is going on in there? Well, often there's problems of inequality problems of livelihoods. So I think you've got to look at it through the lens of people and how we make sure we're working with people to support them in their aspirations at the same time as attempting to do the physical job of addressing climate. So that's why there's a heap of things we've done since we launched the Climate Roadmap. For example, we've launched a new human rights roadmap. We believe that that is an integral part of our journey to net zero. We've launched something in COCO called the Income Accelerator. It too, it focuses on livelihoods and climate and other social concerns. So it's this idea like climate is the most important issue. I think it's the apex issue. But as well as only addressing climate, I think there is room for what I like to call climate and. So climate and biodiversity, firstly, climate and livelihoods, climate and water stress. Climate sits within a system, and I think we need to take an and approach to seeing the systemic connections. We talk a lot about systems change. It's very difficult to get your arms around it. But frankly, nothing shows a system more starkly than when it's under stress and you see where the disconnects are and where the real heat points are. And I think that's what we're experiencing at the moment. I totally agree that
0: deforestation is a challenge where you do link the human rights elements and the climate because, as you said, it's all about livelihoods a lot of the time around deforestation. The people that live in the forest communities need to be able to value the trees remaining rather than being the forest being destroyed, and that that's the real challenge.
1: Ever since the New York Declaration and all the way through All the talk about ending deforestation, very well intended, very well meant. We are now 97% of the way there on our deforestation target. I mean, to all intents and purposes, we are there on deforestation. We're a little bit late. Why? Because we deliberately held back because we didn't want to disadvantage parts of our supply chain that we didn't know enough about. And The reason we didn't know enough about them was because they're the smaller producers. So we wanted to make sure that we didn't disadvantage any livelihoods by pressing forward to hit the 2020 deadline. Line, but do so in a way that causes problems for others. Since then, we've launched the Forest Positive Initiative. Deforestation is what we're against, but what are we for? And so that's why Forest Positive, I think, is so important because it comes at forests through a number of different lenses, particularly around rights, human rights, right to a decent livelihood, and land rights. And what's more, it goes beyond the farm. It's the farm and the landscape. And I think there's a lot of learning about landscape assessments in what we're doing on forests that can actually be transferred across to what we're doing in regenerative agriculture. A landscape's approach is, I think, a really valuable way of thinking.
0: What about then, when you've been developing your roadmap and you're thinking about your strategy, what have been some unintended consequences of your approach? What have been the sort of things that you hadn't thought of that have come to bite you, perhaps, as you've been going?
1: I think there's a couple of things that we're learning as we go along, of course. I mean, there's been a couple of missteps, I don't want to labour them, but there's been a few missteps on our side around, did we plant the right trees in the right places with the right involvement? So that kind of nature-based solutions thing of being a little bit project-oriented, perhaps rather than system-wide oriented, that was a lesson very, very quickly learned. When I think more broadly about unintended consequences, perhaps the unintended consequences of thinking go a little bit beyond our own borders i've been thinking a lot about some of the challenges that the world faces in how we think about climate change and how particularly in this question of land use you know for us as an agriculture and land-based company it is absolutely an opportunity as well as a necessity for us to think about the role of nature-based solutions and agricultural practices So for that, we're looking at both reductions, but we're also looking at removals, removals in the value chain. I'm concerned around certain actors who are focused on only scope one and two emissions and an awful lot of it being dealt with through offsets on a a carbon market. We know full well that there are parts of the world now that are suffering a little bit where investments in forests for carbon offsets are being made without really full scrutiny of the local population, land that's given over to forest cultivation that might not be in the right place in the right way for trading on carbon markets. Many of us would agree that's not necessarily the way we want to go. But for some people, it seems insetting is still an obstacle. You know, I really struggle with that because for us as an agricultural based company, that's where we have the most impacts, where we have the most opportunity as well as a necessity, there's a sort of a can we lift our horizons up and start to be a bit more thoughtful about where criticism goes? And I'll, I'll give you another example I was reading about only over the weekend. If you think about the hard to abate sectors, they need a huge amount of capital to transition to low carbon. You just think about green hydrogen and the amount of money that's going to be involved in moving hard to abate sectors to adopting hydrogen. If you're in steel or cement, for instance, If I'm a bank and I'm thinking, well, I'd like to support that transition, and I start lending to companies that are in those spaces, I've just suddenly taken on a whole load of carbon emissions on my lending book. And I know an awful lot of newspapers and activists that would give me a really hard time for doing that. Now, actually, what we want is we want banks and investors to be running towards those sorts of opportunities and needs to actually finance the transition. Whereas instead, what I think is happening, there are huge obstacles to lenders and investors getting involved in that space. So how do we get across that paradox? You're being hammered for putting too much carbon on your lending book, because that's the present state. Whereas in fact, what you're looking to do is to drive change in the market. So I think there's a whole heap of, of unintended consequences that are out there at the moment. But for me, we have to open our eyes and think, what's the smartest thing we can do that's going to drive change most quickly?
0: Similar point was made to an event we had earlier in the year by someone in the palm oil sector, who said that the due diligence legislation that's coming up in Europe and elsewhere may well have the unintended consequence of driving businesses away from higher-risk sourcing, uh, growing countries, growing communities, where in fact they are the sort of businesses that should be involved in those countries and those growing areas to in fact make the transition. And if they leave, then the transition won't happen. There certainly are always consequences of all these things that haven't been thought through entirely. Let me turn to some questions. Question about the use of science-based targets. Now, our questioner asks um, that it is said that uh, science-based targets are easier when you're a big company like Nestle. What advice do you have for companies in the emerging economies, smaller companies, approaching the use of science-based targets?
1: I think there's a couple of things there. Firstly, to some extent, there's a degree of truth that getting your head around science-based targets needs a certain amount of resource. Having said that, you can do it two ways. One is crack on, find the quick wins. That doesn't take too much imagination. I would strongly suggest, leaving aside the targeting piece, that any actions are taken at the same time you're doing some kind of baseline assessment, because knowing where you are, even if you're not using science-based targets for your aspirations in the future, knowing where you are on a baseline assessment, that's something which I think is perfectly possible and indeed an absolute for everybody to do. Identify where the quick wins are and get on with those, because as Stockholm was pointing out last week, we don't have time. The faster you can get a baseline assessment done, and the faster you can get on with taking action, spending five years studying what science-based targets may or may not mean for you and your value chain is probably not a good use of time right now.
0: Another question, uh, and it's talking about the amount of investment that you're putting into regenerative agriculture. Our questioner, Jan, suggested it was a 1.2 billion euros between 20 and 2025. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Well, it's Swiss francs, actually, to be Swiss precise. Francs, but yes.
0: How can you be satisfied that that's enough, is the gist of the question. Yeah. You've know, given necessarily a massive company, obviously big operating profits. Is that enough?
1: And it's a really good question. And personally speaking, uh, and I use the number because we've gone on public record with it. Is it enough? We'll find out. What we know at the moment is that there are a number of, I mentioned already, there's a number of things that farmers need. They need technical support. We've got 2,000 agronomists around the world and we buy directly from about 600,000 farmers, direct from 600,000 farmers. So we're really very close to the farmer. We know that they need premiums for regeneratively produced ingredients, so we're prepared to pay them. That's where some of that money is going. Some of that money is also going in terms of low-cost loans, and that's happening all around the world. And if we get to a point where we feel like, well, we've made good progress, but we need more, then there will be more because this is a target that we absolutely cannot afford to miss. I'm not saying that we're going to open up a bottomless pit, but at the same time, we made the initial commitment and said, right, that's where we start from. We can see an investment horizon there and we'll build on it from there. I think there's an awful lot of things that we can and should do outside of the investment of the money. Though. And I particularly want to emphasize the technical support. Bearing in mind that for some farmers, very often most farmers, a transition to regenerative agriculture in the short term can affect yields. And farmers need to see that they're going to get a return on their investment over time.
0: Let's turn to another question. You've talked a lot about a number of initiatives and partnerships. Can you say just a little bit about the thinking behind those? What constitutes a good partnership when you're working to meet these goals?
1: The focus in the company is about action and delivery. Whereas we used to have the luxury, I think, in the past where partnerships and collaborations that were there as a good thing. Well, of course, you do them because they're a good thing. Now what we're interested in are partners that can help us actually drive the changes that we need. Example, we work very closely with IDH and KIT on delivering our cocoa income accelerator, which has got a lot of agricultural practices built into it. Those sorts of partners at an international global level are partners that can help us to get things done. And that's the key for us. Meta partnerships are kind of nice to do's. Yeah, they're nice to do. But for us, it's we tend to even not want to talk too much about the collaboration word. We tend to want to talk about collective action. That's the key it all seems to come back to we've got to do everything now
0: so everything is going to be focused on the progress requires immediate action something's going to be hard you know, get the easy wins in because at least then your progress is in the here and now there are a few questions about insetting coming through what is making it hard and secondly how do you credibly report on in the setting? What are the kind of keys to get that, getting that bit right?
1: It's not hard for us to do in a technical sense. It's totally easy for us to do. Some of the criticisms and debates that have been leveled at us have been perhaps a little bit superficial, and maybe we're a bit too sensitive about it, but there have been one or two people that seem to have inferred that firstly, our reductions are not in line with our growth. And that's not the case. And secondly, that somehow or other insetting is gaming the system. And we would disagree with both those points. When it comes to actually insetting, let's give an example of dairy and silvo pasture Planting trees in places where cows are grazing is a perfectly good example of tree planting within your value chain, as opposed to putting up pine forests in some part of the world that doesn't want them. So for us, That's a perfectly good example of a removal within the value chain. We actually haven't made much of it, but we've got a substantial amount of removals that we can see. We're not booking them, but we can see them because of the investments that we've already made in such initiatives as Silvo Pasture. So in terms of technically doing it, it's not that difficult. It's more the getting into the philosophical debate about whether it's allowable or not. When for us as an agricultural firm, it's not like we can shift everything over to renewable energy. We can do the entire company on renewable energy, right? It won't make much more difference than that on our carbon footprint overall. And reporting on it, the credible reporting part? Yeah, measurement. So we've got a very, very detailed, uh, dr- I confess, I, I really don't like the thing because it's called it's called GPS, Greenhouse Gas Performance System. Uh, but basically, it's a very, very, very in-depth measurement tool that we've built, Because we couldn't get something that was as detailed as we need, given the complexities that you've hinted at. We've built our own. That's absolutely crucial to us. And one thing is about scope three, of course, is that a lot of people will talk about the probability of double counting. And there is a possibility of that for sure. But it's a probability. Who knows? The point is, though, that we need to be able to measure on farm exactly the impacts that we're having. So that's why we're investing so heavily in that. We want to be able to demonstrate it.
0: Apart from agriculture, what else are you doing on other parts of the business to get to net zero?
1: So there's a a number of things. I mentioned renewable electricity wouldn't make that much difference. Well, even if it's only a small amount of difference, it's still a difference. So by 2025, all factories over to renewable electricity on transportation, issues around cargo freight. There's a lot of work going on there around decarbonizing the ocean freight. I also think it's worth mentioning plastics and packaging. We made significant announcements prior to our carbon net zero roadmap around reducing virgin plastics by a third by 2025 and all of our packaging being recyclable or renewable by the same period. So all to say that there's all of these other areas, whether it's energy use and manufacturing, whether it's shipping or whether it's packaging, we're at work across the whole waterfront.
0: Are there any other things we should be focusing on, particularly over the next few days?
1: The thing is that this audience is the choir already, right? I mean, there isn't likely to be many people coming to this event that hasn't already got a sense that this is what we should be doing. So I think it's about pace. How do we move further, faster? Bearing in mind that some of the obstacles we see, I saw the other day, only one in five Fortune 500 companies have got scope three in their emissions targets. That huge amount of businesses that have not embraced this yet is an obstacle. So, those of us that have, we need to be thinking about how we work together, to go further faster. So, action to go further faster to accelerate delivery would be a key theme, I would think. Another thing we haven't talked about is the impact of the conflict and how we avoid, back to unintended consequences, that being a break on progress, and if possible, whether we can use it as an accelerant to progress.
0: Rob, thank you very much indeed. It's been a fascinating half an hour. Thank you to Evan for your questions. Some really, really good questions. I'm sorry we didn't be able to get all of them. I hope we covered certainly the themes that were emerging. But for now, thank you very much for your attention and particularly to Rob Cameron,
1: my thanks. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Ian, and a great conference, everybody.